So we are in Ezekiel, and by way of reminder, Ezekiel was among those who were taken into exile by Nebuchadnezzar on the first time that Nebuchadnezzar came to Israel. And he starts prophesying between the first and the second expeditions of Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar goes the first time, takes a whole bunch of hostages and a bunch of loot, and goes home and leaves a bunch of Jews and leaves Jerusalem intact. Jerusalem has rebelled, and the second time he goes back, that's when he destroys the temple and levels the city. So this beginning part of Ezekiel is during that interval between the two invasions of Nebuchadnezzar to Israel. What we talked first about last time is we talked about his vision of the chariot that God was in. And the thing that I said there is he, Ezekiel, described it in terms that he understood. So he saw wings and wheels and flashes of lightning and stuff like that. And one of the things that I said is if we were looking at the same thing, we would see rotors and strobe lights and that kind of thing. And all that is not by way of saying you saw a helicopter or a drone. It's just that with our understanding of technology, when we saw something like that, we would describe it in terms of rotary wing aircraft and so forth. He describes it in terms of flashes of lightning and wings and calves feet, whereas we would see a calf foot as a skid, you know, on a helicopter. So what I'm trying to do is get you to see that people see things in terms that are familiar to them. So where we are tonight, he's going to prophesy the siege in Jerusalem. And as I said just a second ago, he's prophesying during the interval between the first and the second expeditions of Nebuchadnezzar to Israel. And of course, in the second expedition, Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. So in chapter 4, he's going to do some stuff to physically model the destruction of Jerusalem, which is going to happen under Nebuchadnezzar. Let's pick it up back in 322 to sort of get a run at it. And the hand of the Lord was upon me there, and he said to me, Arise, go out into the valley, and there I will speak with you. So I arose and went out into the valley, and behold, the glory of the Lord stood there, like the glory that I had seen by the Shebar canal, and I fell on my face. And again, we said last time, when the glory of the Lord surrounds you, that is sort of a signature behavior. You fall on your face, lose your knees, very often are laid up for several days, as both Ezekiel and Daniel were under those circumstances. 24. But the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet, and that's the same thing that happened to Daniel. You remember, Daniel goes down when he is confronted by the angel of the Lord or Yeshua or somebody, and he gets picked up and stood on his feet and said, you're beloved and I'm not grumpy with you. I need to talk to you, so you need to stand up. And that's sort of what happens here to Ezekiel. So 24, but the spirit entered into me and set me on my feet and he spoke with me and said to me, 
Go, shut yourself within your house, and you, O son of man, behold, cords will be placed upon you, and you shall be bound with them, so that you cannot go out among the people. And I will make your tongue cling to the roof of your mouth, so that you shall be mute and unable to reprove them, for they are a rebellious house. But when I speak with you, I will open your mouth, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God, He who will hear, let him hear, and he who will refuse to hear, let him refuse, for they are a rebellious house. The other thing that is going on among all of this is there are false prophets stirring up the exiles. And that's the source of Jeremiah's letter. Remember, Jeremiah writes a letter to the exiles in Babylon. What they've got are false prophets trying to convince them to rebel against the Babylonians and break out. Jeremiah sends them a letter and says, guys, God says you're going to be there for 70 years. Relax, cool it, get a job, marry, build a life there, because the better you make your life there, the better your captivity will be for you, but you ain't coming home for at least 70 years. So all of that is going on in this time here where Ezekiel is prophesying. So when God says to the exiles, verse 27, when I speak with you, I will open your mouth and you shall say to them, who them? The people in exile. You will say to them, thus says the Lord God, he will hear, let him hear, and he will refuse to hear, let him refuse, for they are a rebellious house. What we're talking about there is the ferment that is going on because of these false prophets that are trying to convince the exiles also to rebel. So you have Judah and Jerusalem that were left behind by Nebuchadnezzar that are going to be convinced to rebel. And you've got the false prophets trying to convince the exiles to rebel. So between Jeremiah and Ezekiel, what God is saying to the exiles is, cool it, settle down. And he's not going to be able to stop the rebellion of the remainder in Judah. And so Nebuchadnezzar is going to come on his second expedition and destroy the place. Chapter 4. And you, son of man, take a brick and lay it before you and engrave on it a city, even Jerusalem. The word brick there can also mean a clay tablet. It's one of those words that means several things. One of the commentaries that I read said what we're probably talking about is a clay tablet where he draws a picture of Jerusalem, which has a distinctive outline. So he draws it in the clay as opposed to drawing on a dried brick. It may have been incised in a clay tablet. The, the word works either way. And put siege works against it and build a siege wall against it, and cast up a mound against it, set camps also against it, and plant battering rams against it all around. What he's describing is a siege with that technology. What happens is the invading army comes, runs everybody out of the countryside and into the city. And they run into the city, take as much food as they can with them and so forth, close the walls, and hunker down. 
So what the siege engineers will do is they will build mounds up out of earth. And what that does is two things. One, the walls of a city are thicker below than they are above. In other words, as they go up, they get thinner. So if you get up high, when you start doing your battering rams, you're going against a weaker part of the wall than if you're trying to bang on the base of the wall. The archers in the fortress are shooting down on the people who are besieging. And when you are defending something, gravity is your friend. You want to be up, not down. Because if you're down, you've got to shoot up, you've got to move up, and if you're high, you can shoot down and move down. So you have a physical advantage being high. In fact, one of the classic texts is by Erwin Rommel, a German field marshal. He wrote it after World War I, and he was talking about his campaign as an infantryman in the Italian Alps during World War I. And one of the things he was complaining about is he said, all right, I sent my guys around here to come at it the other way, and the dumb sergeant went down and lost 500 feet of elevation that he had to then get back up in order to get to where he was going to attack. So the idea of a siege mound is getting up so that you're shooting on level with them instead of them shooting down and you trying to shoot up. And then the idea of camps all around. Has anybody besides me been to Masada? When you stand up on Masada, you see the remains of Roman camps around the Mesa. And the Romans camp there, and they just sit there. And what they're doing is they are preventing people from coming in and out. So the people inside can't go in or out because of the enemy camps around the city. So they're cast up mounds against it. They set camps also against it and then plant battering rams against it all around. So that's siege technology a la 500 years BC and for quite a while afterwards, by the way. Up until the time you get gunpowder, siege technology doesn't change much. Uh, once you start getting gunpowder, things change. So then verse 3. And you, take an iron griddle and place it as an iron wall between you and the city and set your face toward it and let it be in a state of siege and press the siege against it. This is a sign for the house of Israel. Commentary that I was reading had a really interesting take on this. Iron griddle could be a frying pan. It could also be an iron plate. You've all been to restaurants where they have a griddle, and it's a big steel plate that you fry stuff on. But the thing that the commentary came up with that I had never thought of before, which I thought was really very good, is this is an iron wall between the people in the city and the face of God, which is to say God will not hear your prayers. The city is going to be destroyed. You can wail and pray and cover yourself with sackcloth and ashes and all that kind of stuff, but I'm not going to listen to you. Hence the iron griddle, if you will, between the prophet, who represents the face of God in this case, and the model of the besieged city.
I thought that was kind of an interesting take on that. Now this next section, I have no idea what it means, but we'll read it and talk about it anyway. Comment was, it's really interesting that it's talking as a sign against the house of Israel, as opposed to the house of Judah, because the only ones that are still around are Judah. Judah got taken into exile by Nebuchadnezzar. Judah is a remnant back there, so all you've got is Judah, not Israel. A little bit later on, he's going to talk about the land of Israel, and I am sort of guessing that he's using Israel as everybody who's left, but I understand your question and I'm not arguing with you. Verse 4, then lie on your left side and place the punishment of the house of Israel upon it. No idea what that means. For the number of the days that you lie on it, you shall bear their punishment. For I assign to you a number of days, 390 days, equal to the number of the years of their punishment. So long shall you bear the punishment of the house of Israel. And when you have completed these, you shall lie down a second time, but on your right side, and bear the punishment of the house of Judah. Forty days I assign you a day for each year, and you shall set your face toward the siege of Jerusalem. With your arm bared, you shall prophesy against the city. And behold, I will place cords upon you so that you cannot turn from one side to the other until you have completed the days of your siege. Now, several things here. Let's assume for a moment, doesn't say this, commentary I was reading suggests it, that he has got his head toward Jerusalem. And so he's lying down and his head is pointed west toward Jerusalem. So in that case, when he's lying on his right side, he's looking north. When he's lying on his left side, he's looking south. So you have north facing, you see Israel, south facing, you see Judah. I have no idea what the number of days represent. Commentary I read said nobody else does either. And we don't have any idea whether it's past or future just don't know. The comment was that the right hand is righteous, the left hand represents judgment, so the idea of lying on his left side, the place of punishment, I don't have any problem with any of that. I don't have anything better. You know, I mean, somebody may have a really cool understanding of this, but I don't. The other thing is, obviously, This is not a 24-7 thing because he would not survive 390 days 24-7. In fact, let's go ahead and go down to verse 9. You take wheat and barley, beans and lentils, millet and emer, and put them into a single vessel and make your bread from them. During the number of the days that you lie on your side, 390 days, you shall eat it. So the whole point here is he is not lying on his side continuously for 390 days. He is going to get up, he's going to make bread, he's going to tend to his biological needs, all of that. Obviously, I have no idea what the duty schedule is. Scripture doesn't say. But it is obvious that he is not there continuously for 390 days. And similarly, being bound 
with ropes, you will see that again down here, is also symbolic. He's not going to stay tied up for 390 days or 40 days or whatever. He's going to obviously be untied to make his bread and all that kind of stuff. So anyway, we're taking all of this legumes and grain and making it into a bread. And during the number of days that you lie on your side, 390 days, you shall eat it. And your food that you eat shall be by weight. 20 shekels a day from day to day, you shall eat it. So we're talking about a siege. 20 shekels a day is really slight rations. A shekel is about two-fifths of an ounce, so 40 divided by 5 is 8, so 8 ounces. And I'm assuming 8 ounces of dry wheat, dry barley, and dry beans, not 8 ounces of bread. But I don't know that. I mean, it may be that 8 ounces a day is after you bake it. But my point is it represents famine. And similarly, there's going to be rationing on the amount of water he's able to drink. And it represents the same thing. It represents famine. So we have a physical enactment, if you will, of a siege and the famine that proceeds from it. And if you read, for example, the book of Lamentations, which is written by Jeremiah, and he writes it after the fall of Jerusalem. In Lamentation, there are descriptions of the famine and the lack of water and all of the things that Ezekiel is prophesying here. So anyway, what we have is eight ounces of grains and legumes per day, which is, as I say, pretty much starvation rations for what, 390 days? 360 days is a year plus another 30, so it's a year and a quarter. Um, I, you know, eating eight ounces a day for a year and a quarter, he's going to lose some weight. And the same with the amount of water he's given. It's pretty marginal. So verse 11, And water you shall drink by measure, the sixth part of a hen, from day to day you shall drink. A hen is about four quarts, so it's one-sixth of four quarts, which is less than a quart of water per day. And again, one of the things that happens during a siege is the besieging army will try and cut off food and water, starve people out. And in fact, they do that during the siege of Jerusalem. Verse 12, And you shall eat it as a barley cake, baking it in their sight on human dung. Verse 13, And the Lord said, Thus shall the people of Israel eat their bread unclean among the nations where I will drive them. Then I said, Oh, Lord God, behold, I have never defiled myself. From my youth up until now, I have never eaten what has died of itself or was torn by beast, nor has tainted meat come into my mouth. Then he said to me, See, I assign to you cow's dung instead of human dung on which you may prepare your bread. So the distinction here is apparently human dung was being used as fuel for a fire was considered disgusting. Throughout the world, the dung of herbivores is flammable. A cow or 
a goat or anything like that, eats nothing but vegetables. And the stuff that comes out of the back end is combustible. And it is regularly used as fuel throughout the world. And so the idea of using dung to bake his bread, God is making a point, but he's saying, all right, I won't make you do anything truly disgusting, but I still want to make my point. So he relents in the kind of manure that will be burned, but he still insists that the bread be baked on a manure fire. And the other thing, by the way, just to reinforce this, is Ezekiel's a priest, and I will suggest that he has probably more than a normal sensitivity to the things that are disgusting. Part of his job is to separate clean from unclean and holy from common. And a priest would have been trained in that. So I suspect that as a priest, he is pretty much attuned to that kind of stuff. So 15 again. Then he said to me, see, I assign to you cow's dung instead of human dung, on which you may prepare your bread. Moreover, he said to me, son of man, behold, I will break the supply of bread in Jerusalem. They shall eat bread by weight and with anxiety. They shall drink water by measure and in dismay. I will do this that they may lack bread and water and look at one another in dismay and rot away because of their punishment. So the idea here is God is not going to have any mercy upon them. And there's a couple of terms for famine in the Bible. One of them we see here, where you eat by weight, which is to say stuff is being rationed out to you. The amount that you get in any given time is carefully weighed and rationed. That's one euphemism in the Bible that talks about famine. The other one is, I will give you clean teeth. The idea of clean teeth is you got no food to put in your mouth, so your teeth never get dirty. Those are both euphemism or metaphors, if you will, for famine to chapter 5. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to continue this pantomime. And you all know what a pantomime is, of course. That's where you make gestures and stuff. And in fact, it's a game called charades where somebody has a phrase and somebody else has to act out that phrase and do it in such a way that people guess what the phrase is. So it's a pantomime game. So when I'm saying pantomime, I'm not in any way being despairing here. It's literally what it is, is he's doing a pantomime of a siege and famine and all of that. So chapter 5. And you, O son of man, take a sharp sword, use it as a barber's razor, and pass it over your head and your beard. Then take balances for weighing and divide the hair. A third part you shall burn in the fire in the midst of the city. Then the days of the siege are completed, and a third part you shall take and strike with the sword all around the city. And a third part you shall scatter to the wind, and I will unsheath the sword after them. So, obviously, shaving oneself with a sword is also a pantomime. This is all going to happen as a result of warfare. It is not going to happen because of a normal barber's action. 
The idea of using a sword in place of a razor is symbolic. The other thing is one of the kings of Israel sent ambassadors to one of the local kings yes. and the, the local king shaved off half their beard and I think cut their cloak off so their butts were exposed and sent them back. I think it was one of David's ambassadors. And first thing David said to them, I'm going to go destroy those folks. But the second thing he says is go live in this small town until your beards grow back. In other words, he didn't make them wander around Jerusalem looking half-shaved because it would have been shameful. So the idea here of shaving himself bald, both top of his head and his beard, is again an act of shame. Second Samuel 10, thank you. One of the things that happened during World War II in North Africa is the Australians had very little respect for the Italian troops. And so when they would capture Italians as prisoners of war, what they would do is take their trousers off, paint their butts blue, and send them back to the Italians. So this idea of doing something like that goes all the way back to David. So anyway, we're cutting the hair off. We're dividing it into three parts. And what's happening here is a third of it will die during the siege. The city's going to be burned, so a third of the people are going to die during the siege. A third of the people shall be killed by the sword in the vicinity of the city. And then a third of the people will be scattered among the nations. And furthermore, they'll be scattered among the nations in such a way that they will be constantly in fear of being attacked. They're not going to go into exile in peace. They're going to go into exile and they're going to be hunted down and persecuted. Verse 3. And you shall take from these a small number and bind them in the skirts of your robe. And of these again you shall take some and cast them into the midst of the fire and burn them in the fire. From there a fire will come out to all the house of Israel. question was, is this future or is this A.D. 70? Could very well be either one or both. But the ones that are scattered and the ones that are in his robe think they have escaped. But even they will be hunted down. Some will be in the fire and some will go by the sword. And this is all the house of Israel, not Judah. So I'm not sure what to do with that. Verse 5. Thus says the Lord God, This is Jerusalem. I have set her in the center of the nations, with countries all around her, and she has rebelled against my rules by doing wickedness, more than the nations, and against my statutes, more than the countries all around her. For they have rejected my rules and have not walked with my statutes. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you are more turbulent than the nations that are all around you, and have not walked in my statutes or obeyed my rules, and have not even acted according to the rules of the nations that are all around you, therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I, even I, am against you, and I will execute judgment in your midst in the sight of the nations." And because of all your abominations, I will do to you what I have never yet done, and the like of which I will never do again. Stop there for a minute. What he's saying is, Israel, 
when I brought you out of Egypt, I put you in Israel. And you all know your geography. Israel is the center of the world at that time. It is the only land route between Eurasia and Africa. It is the only route that you can move an army between Eurasia and Africa. So on the west, you have the Great Sea, and on the east, you have the Great Arabian Desert. So if you're going to move an army, you've got to go through Israel. And up until the Phoenicians, who introduced blue water sailing, all of the sailing was hopping around the coast. In other words, you stayed in sight of the coast. So Israel is a choke point between Eurasia and Africa. Now, once the Phoenicians got going and you had you know, blue water sailing, they could go straight across the Mediterranean. That loosened up a bit. But what God did is he put his people right in the crossroads of the world, and he has got nations all around them, many of which are hostile. That's what he's saying there. Furthermore, he's saying that I protected you in that position that I put you in. I stuck you there because having you there enables you to have influence for me all over the known world. Because every time armies or traders, as in merchants, go up or down through there, what you wind up doing is you wind up transplanting Jews. You know, it's like a bird dog going through a briar patch. You think that you've got to pull the birds out. The birds think that they're getting a ride to the next place where they're going to plant themselves. So bird dogs going through a briar patch transplant birds. In the same way with armies and merchants going north and south through Israel, they transplant Jews. So by the time of Christ, you have got synagogues all over the Mediterranean basin with the word of God there. So that's why God put them where he put them. And he's saying to them, not only did you fall into apostasy, but the stuff you were doing was worse than the pagan nations around you were doing. It is not just the case that you sort of went native and behaved like everybody else. No, no. The stuff you were doing was worse than they were doing. And if you remember from Genesis, God says that I'm going to give you this land, but it's going to be a while. And one of the things he says is the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. Now, the things that the pagan nations did is they engaged in child sacrifice, human sacrifice. They engaged in temple prostitution and not with the consenting adults. You know, they used slaves and children, male and female. So they were thoroughly corrupt. Israel did the same thing. And in fact, Israel was involved in burning their children to Molech. So if God thought it was just when Israel went into the land under Joshua, the instructions were, kill them all. Don't make treaties, nothing. Kill them all. Because they had fallen to such a state that they weren't redeemable. So what God is saying here is when I am bringing calamities upon you, I am being nothing but just and consistent. 
because your behavior is equivalent or worse than the behavior that caused me to wipe out the inhabitants of the land under Joshua. So how can I let you behave the same way without exacting the same consequence? This is not violating the Sabbath and eating the occasional pork chop. This is serious corruption that involves human sacrifice, child sacrifice, child prostitution, temple prostitution, pretty much anything you can come up with. That's why this is happening. And we've said this lots of times. God has promised that he will not do away with them entirely. But he will not let them stay there bearing his name and letting people think that he's letting them get away with it. So they're going to still be his people. We still got a covenant. But now the covenant is going to be with you scattered among the nations and afraid and so forth. But you're still going to be my people. And someday I'm going to bring you back. But I can't let you stay where you are now because in doing so, you're tarnishing my name. So that's what's going on here. People read all of that and say, oh, gee, that's just awfully harsh. It is measure for measure. Verse 10. Therefore, fathers will eat their sons in your midst, and sons will eat their fathers, and I will execute judgment on you, and any of you who survive, I will scatter to all the winds. Read the book of Lamentations. All of this happened. Verse 11. Therefore, As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your detestable things and with all your abominations, therefore I will withdraw. My eye will not spare, I will have no pity. A third part of you shall die of pestilence and be consumed with famine in your midst. A third part shall fall by the sword all around you, and a third part I will scatter to all the winds and I will unsheathe the sword after them. So not only are they going to be sent into exile, but they're going to be chased by swords in exile. In other words, the exile is not the entire punishment. The exile is simply the place where they get chased by killers. Verse 13, Thus shall my anger spend itself, and I will vent my fury upon them and satisfy myself. They shall know that I am the Lord, that I have spoken in my jealousy, when I spend my fury upon them. By the way, jealousy here is a technical term. Israel is God's people. So when Israel goes after other gods, that is the same to God as when a husband or wife strays from the marriage bed. So he is jealous, which is to say he is jealous over what is his because it is being given to someone else. Verse 14. Moreover, I will make you a desolation and an object of reproach among all the nations all around you in the sight of all who pass by. And again, that was what I'm saying. I cannot let you live in peace in the land in the apostasy and the adultery that you've fallen into. I have to make an example of you to show that I am consistent, to show that I am just, to show that I am God. Verse 15. You shall be a reproach and a taunt, a warning and a horror to the nations all around you when I execute judgments on you in anger and fury with furious rebukes. I am the Lord. I have spoken. When I send against you the deadly arrows of famine, arrows for destruction, 
which I will send to destroy you. Then I will bring more and more famine upon you and break your supply of bread. I will send famine and wild beasts against you, and they will rob you of your children. Pestilence and blood shall pass through you, and I will bring the sword upon you. I am the Lord, I have spoken. So the idea of wild beasts robbing them of their children? You folks do child sacrifice. You don't care about your children, why should I? That's what he's saying. The other thing you should notice here is very, very strong echoes of Exodus, where God says to Egypt, they shall know that I am the Lord. Over and over again, God says through Moses, you shall know that I am the Lord. And he's saying now the same thing over Israel, because Israel has lost track of that. Israel has fallen into idolatry, apostasy, and abomination. So God is reminding them of who he is. God is consistent. The reason it was just for Israel under Joshua to wipe them all out is because they had fallen into such abominations and apostasy. Same thing with Sodom and Gomorrah. It was just for God to wipe them out. So what God is saying here is, the fact that you're my people doesn't mean that my justice doesn't apply to you. It does. However, you are my people, so I will leave a remnant of you, A, to serve as a lousy example, and B, because at some point I will restore you. He's absolutely consistent. He's absolutely just. There's a preacher that I heard years and years and years ago. I don't remember who it was. The waves of God's fury are pounding against the dam of his mercy. And at some point, the dam of his mercy is going to break because it's going to get so bad that his mercy can't contain his fury anymore. 